that either went to the special two-day training that we conducted or they've had special in-house trainings for their officers. So, and, and currently right now there's a trooper that works some of the areas like Dorchester and Orange that don't have their own police departments. He got a special block of elder abuse training at the academy. It's now standard in this state. So every officer you're going to encounter knows something about elder abuse cases. I wanted to give you our contact information for people in the room. I'll, we can give it to you afterwards as well. But if you're out in the webcast audience and you have a question that you don't think of during our presentation, by all means, feel free to email either Ryan or I. We will always, or you know, you can call us too. We may not get back to you the same day that you have the question, but we will get back to you. And if you're watching on the webcast and you have a question during the presentation and you can't raise your hand and wave at us like the nice people in the room, um, this is the email address that you can use. The ladies here at the Aging Resource Center are helping us out by letting us know when an email comes in from people that are watching on the internet. So we're going to talk about a wide variety of things too. And we're trying to kind of shoot for everything in, in a small two-hour block. But more importantly, we want to answer the questions that all of you have. So please don't feel like you're interrupting us or that it's not on topic or anything like that. When you have a question, ask us. We'll take care of it. Um, but these are the areas that we're hoping to cover during this presentation. We want to talk about, first and foremost, about why it is that seniors are targets. Because all of you are very attractive to many thieves out there in the world. We want to talk to you about the different kinds of financial scams that we've seen. One of the downsides, or good sides, depending on how you want to look at it, of having specialized training in elder abuse is that it's kind of like that movie Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. <laughs> Once everybody's trained, you begin seeing it in places that you never thought you would before. And um, when Ryan joins me, he'll have some more, but I, I'll tell you about my experiences too, where I look back and I think, oh my gosh, that, that was something. I just didn't know it at the time. We'll talk about our real cases from Grafton County. Um, all the cases that we talk about were things that actually came through our office. They're not something we heard about, not something we read about. We've changed names of all of the individuals, but we do have their permission, um, with the exception there are a couple of people that have passed away. We do not, we didn't get a chance to ask them if it was okay before they passed. But all of the people that are still alive, we, we did get their permission to talk about their stories, but we've changed their names for obvious reasons. We'll also talk to you about how you can keep your money safe and your identity safe in particular. Um, in these, I think it has to do with the economy still being a little on the rough side. We continue to see more and more and more financial cases coming in that where seniors are the victims. And then we'll talk to you about how to protect yourself and others that you may know from becoming victims. And I keep using this term elder abuse and a lot of people think about child abuse as like when the kid gets hit has a mark left on them, domestic violence, that woman you, you used to see in the grocery store with the black eye. For elder abuse, there are many variations of it, including psychological and emotional abuse and financial abuse, quite honestly. And we're talking about money because at the heart of every single elder abuse case that both Ryan and I have seen, money is an issue. So we're going to kind of focus on the financial aspect because it, it hits to all the levels. There are many scams out there, and, and they don't really care if they're taking your property, your investments, your cash, your wedding ring, there are ways that they will try to get it. Scams include identity theft, telemarketing cons, stealing social security checks out of outdoor mailboxes, and fraud from contractors and professional advisors. And there are some special problems we have with those that we'll talk about when we get to it. So the biggest question though is why are seniors targeted? 
And when we say targeted, we don't just mean the people that are randomly calling you. One of the things we really, really want all of you to know is that about 75% of elder abuse is committed by someone either within the family or who's trusted. So when we talk about the telemarketing scams, they make up actually a small percentage of folks. So, um, and, and I want to say this too, the last couple of times that we've given this presentation, I think this is the fourth or fifth time we've given it, we've always had somebody get a little bit paranoid <laughs> and begin asking questions like, how do I know my son's going to be a good power of attorney? I don't have those answers for you, and I certainly don't mean to scare anyone or make them paranoid. We're just trying to flesh things out to you that have happened to other people that are more or less in some of the same situations all of you are in. Um, so. Take that as, as you will. So this is a sample case. This has happened a couple of times that we have not been able to necessarily pursue a prosecution because a crime was not committed, but we do still consider it a case of elder abuse. And specifically, it goes along the lines of an elderly woman who's probably widowed, whose children have moved away, doesn't really see the grandkids, doesn't have a lot of extended family in the area is befriended by a younger woman in the community. Maybe she's a friend of a friend, maybe she's the granddaughter of a friend, who knows, but she's got a connection to her and she begins to spend time with her in ways that you would hope your children would. Taking you shopping, taking you to church, um, helping you with chores around the house. Um, but more importantly, it's the companionship because we see over time and time again that isolation and loneliness in older folks, not that other people can't be, but it happens more with your age group than any other, that that's kind of the inroad that a lot of the scammers and thieves use. Pretty soon she's a friend and she's helping herself to that really nice necklace that she's always admired. And of course the woman is grateful to have friendship and so she, of course she gives her the necklace. That's what friends do, they share things. And then the collectibles and then the social security checks begin being deposited in the young woman's account. And by the time somebody else in her life catches on, a deed to a property, a substantial amount of money from the bank account, they're gone. And there's not a lot that we can do about it as law enforcement because there's no crime committed, but we do still consider it elder abuse. So these are some examples of financial exploitation that we've seen using the victim's personal information, your social security number, your date of birth to establish lines of credit that are then run up and not paid at all. And the bill collectors are not going after them because they don't have their name anywhere in a file, they have your name. Um, cashing older folks' checks without their permission. Perhaps um, somebody offers to take your check to the bank, so you endorse it, and the money never makes it to your account. Forging somebody's name on a check for an annuity or for something along those lines, that, that happens fairly often as well in cases of elder abuse. Misusing or stealing the person's money. Perhaps you add them to your bank account so they can help you pay your bills, but then they begin paying for trips to Hawaii and new boats and things of that nature. And this is more rare, but it does happen too, where someone is tricked or deceived in some way into signing a document that either transfers property or perhaps gives a power of attorney or the will comes into play. So why me, you're thinking? Why me after all these years and all the hard work I've put in? Well, that's exactly it. It's the hard work that you've put in. Many of you have nest eggs that you've retired on. You own your own homes. You may have um, really good asset investments. Maybe you survived the, the 
the stock market or maybe it's recovering even your line of credit you know you've been paying your bills on time regularly for many many years and the credit reporting agencies reward you with that by giving you a higher credit score probably in most cases much higher than someone in their 20s and 30s um, that makes you an enormous target people over the age of 65 in America control about 15 trillion dollars in assets trillion dollars in assets so if you're a thief boy that's a nice target isn't it and a MetLife survey showed that 2.6 billion dollars are lost every year in some kind of financial abuse on seniors so this is this the numbers are there you are being targeted and part of that too is that your generation is different than mine I'm part of that generation X that they talk about we're the ones that got the Walkman and we could just you know be by ourselves and ignore the rest of the world I don't know if that's true or not I think it, it can be true um, but in general uh, your generation was taught to be a lot more polite trusting and generous than subsequent generations and so they rely on that they rely on your inability as they see it to say no or back off or hang up the phone or just ignore them <coughs> They will try to exploit all of those traits. But most importantly, most importantly above all, they are counting on you as a senior citizen to not report a crime. And there are a couple of different reasons why we've learned that seniors don't report crimes. The first one is that all of you have been law-abiding citizens for many years. You don't know how to report a crime. Ryan will tell you too that one of the other things that he's heard is that someone will say, well, I didn't want to bother you because you know, you're dealing with real things. Well, as Ryan will tell you, abuse of a senior is a real thing. And no matter what's going on, he will make time for it. And that's true of every officer that you're going to encounter here in the Upper Valley and in all of Grafton County. Um, the, the chiefs of police have given a directive. They've been very enthusiastic about targeting elder abuse. And in fact, as I might have mentioned earlier, one of the chiefs from the northern part of this county is participating in this webcast and I know that there are other law enforcement officers from other parts of the state that are tuning in right now too so they're there for a reason they're there for all crimes not just you know let them do their job let them decide if it's a crime or not you just go ahead and report it a lot of times seniors are too embarrassed or ashamed to tell anybody what happened perhaps that you trusted somebody there's no shame in that that's a wonderful quality in people to be trusting you know, law enforcement in general tend to be a little suspicious of people because of their experience. They think it's a wonderful thing that you are trusting. Don't be ashamed by it. Sometimes people may not realize what has happened for some period of time, especially if you're trusting someone else with your financials. It's not bad to trust somebody else with your financials, but it may go on for quite some time if it's a while since you've reviewed it. And I'll actually talk about a case in which um, the victim has since passed away where that's exactly what happened he had a period of time where he couldn't review his finances because of his medical condition and by the time he realized what was happening enormous amounts of money were gone but the number one thing that we're finding about why seniors don't want to report their concerns or crimes that happened to them is that they're worried that their family that their friends are going to think maybe he or she has dementia now maybe they can't take care of themselves anymore one of the biggest things that we've been teaching law enforcement is about the fear of dementia. It's the number one fear in many studies for people over the age of 60. Dementia runs in my family. I'm worried about it. 
And so I try to do that which I can to help my brain stay in shape. It doesn't mean that you can't necessarily handle things anymore, and it's not anything to be ashamed of. It's something that happens, and it's something that law enforcement have learned to recognize. So I know it's as embarrassing as it may be. I'd also like to mention to you that I know there are other programs that are offered through the Aging Resource Center that talk about cognitive kind of issues. There are many reasons sometimes, too, why you may have clouded thinking. Doctor changes your prescription. That may be all it takes. Maybe you're missing a, a vitamin that you, you could easily supplement with. So we'll talk about the fact that, you know, start with your doctor if, if you're worried about yourself. But also know that there's something called psychological abuse. It's called crazy-making behavior by some of us. And it, and it goes as follows. Let's assume for the sake of argument that you have always hung your keys on a peg by the door for all of your life as long as you've lived in your house. That's always where your car keys go, okay? And one day you go to get your car keys and they're not there. And you can't find them anywhere. No, nowhere that you look, it doesn't make any sense. They're not in your pocketbook, they're not in your coat pocket, they're not on the table. Where the heck are your keys? And the caregiver, the abuser, whoever it is maybe, says, well, they're in the drawer under the coffee maker where you always keep them. And you think to yourself, I have never in my life put keys in a drawer. That's crazy. But they keep insisting to you, you've always kept those keys in that drawer. Maybe you're slipping. Maybe we should go talk to your doctor. That's called psychological abuse, and it's present in the vast majority of cases of elder abuse where the person doing the abuse is someone you know. So that's the kind of thing to look out for. It exists in other types, it exists to some extent in domestic violence cases as well, but we're seeing it more and more so in elder abuse cases. So if you have a concern, if you're a victim, if you have a friend that's a victim that thinks, if I report this to the police, they're gonna flag me and I'm not, I'm gonna lose my driver's license, I'm not gonna be able to you know, make my payments, I'm gonna have to live in a nursing home. Don't make that your reason for not reporting. That may not be exactly what happens. So for those of you that have never had to file a complaint before, we wanted to just go through the process of what it looks like when you go to law enforcement. Um, this may be different in other states. I know there are people from Illinois, Minnesota, and Utah watching right now, so their process might be different. But here in New Hampshire, this is the process. So when you make a report to the police agency, you're probably gonna talk with a patrol officer in the first instance, somebody who's you know, riding the roads, doing radar, among other things. He or she will take as much information as they can in the very beginning. They'll make an assessment. If it looks like something that they themselves can follow up on, and some of the smaller departments, your patrol officer is also your detective too, by the way, they'll follow up on it. If they need to process it over to a detective or someone who has more time to do an, an intense investigation, that will happen within there. You will know at all times, though, what officer is handling your case. This is important to let you know, too. Just because you make a report with the police does not necessarily mean that it goes any further than that. I'll give you an example. We know of um, the case that Ryan's going to talk about. The victim had previously been the victim of identity theft. Her daughter had stolen her personal identification, applied for a credit card, ran the bill up, and then walked away from it. And so that's how she found out about it, was that there was this credit card delinquency payment for 
I think it was like $1,500. It wasn't a very big credit card, but when you're living on a fixed income, $1,500 is a lot of money. And so she went to law enforcement. She went to her local police agency. She made the report. They said, okay, basically, do you want to pursue this? And she said, no, but I do need the creditors off my back. And so the police did what they could. They contacted um, the credit card company. They said, look, here's what's been going on. Here are the signatures that we have that show that they're quite different. Um, but at this time, the victim does not want to go forward with the prosecution. And they took it off her credit rating. They closed that account. And then they initiated whatever proceedings they initiate to recover their $1,500. Nothing happened out of that, but it was important when her granddaughter did the same thing a couple of years later for us to see the pattern of what was going on. So just because you go to the police does not necessarily mean that there will be anybody arrested, that there will be any charges brought, but it is important to let them know to start off with. Now I will tell you too, for those of you that might have moved here from another state, in a lot of states um, the case can only go forward with the victim's permission. That's not true in New Hampshire. We can technically initiate the charges, but I don't know anybody that would force a victim to go through complaint, process, trial without their permission. That's just not something we do. We don't, you've been victimized once, we're not gonna drag you into a courtroom again. If you want it to go forward, the investigation will begin. And depending on exactly what happened, it may take some time. The officer's gonna talk to all the witnesses that he or she thinks may have important information. They may go and get some financial records depending on what has happened. Um, they may do some follow-up kind of things with you. But that, that will all happen, and once the investigation's done, there'll be a determination if there's a crime or not. Now, sometimes they'll do the investigation and learn there's not actually a crime here. We'll talk a little bit about contractors in a little bit, but generally the contractor cases are probably not going to be crimes. It doesn't mean that the police can't investigate because there might be a crime there, but in general, some of them are not. Um, if it's determined that there are criminal charges to proceed on, it will be referred to their prosecutor. Now in the district courts in New Hampshire, that, that is on the police department. Some of them contract out with a uh, prosecutor or a prosecutorial association. Um, like here in Lebanon, all of their district court prosecution is handled in-house. The other towns here are all part of an association, so it all goes through one prosecutor there. If it's a felony, it's going to come up to my office, and at that time, the prosecutor's gonna review it and determine whether charges are appropriate or not. If charges are appropriate, we can prove our case beyond a reasonable doubt. We'll seek, you know, the complaint will be filed in district court or an indictment will be sought from the grand jury and the case will proceed from there. Um, in our office, we, actually flip over here to this one. In our office, we are um, bound by law to comply with the victim's bill of rights and we are happy to do so. In New Hampshire, if you are the victim of a felony crime, you have certain rights and in fact, we have two women in our office that it's their whole job to make sure we prosecutors are complying with all of this. You're gonna be notified about the process. You're gonna be treated with fairness and respect at all times. You'll have input on a plea bargain if you want to. And you will be able to give us restitution amounts for us to seek as part of the sentence. And you have a right to be present for all the hearings and to be heard at a sentencing hearing. While the district courts, are, district court prosecutors are not bound by that, to the best of my knowledge, and I, I know all of them down here, and I know all of them in the Plymouth area, and in the Littleton area, they all feel like they should 
even though they don't have to, they feel like it's their duty as prosecutors to do this, these sorts of things too. So that's what would happen. I wanted to go back to this one because as I told you, one of the things that they, there are certain misperceptions, I guess, or commonalities or stereotypes about senior citizens that a lot of people kind of fall for. Um, you know, kind of the cartoon with the older gentleman with a cane and he's got that old-fashioned device up to his ear asking, A, you know, we've got these certain ideas in our head and part of our training of law enforcement has been to put all of that to one side and, and we've been very successful with it. But that doesn't mean that the con artists that are going after your money aren't still thinking that way. So they know that time has an effect on everyone's memory. This is true regardless of who you are. You can remember what you had for breakfast yesterday a lot easier than you can a year ago, or five years ago, or 10 years ago. And especially when you get into detailed information like your financials, that's gonna be hard for anybody to remember. But they especially target elder victims because they assume that people will also fit their, excuse me, go along with kind of their preconceived notion that this old guy doesn't really remember what we talked about. That's what they're assuming. And unfortunately, they've been right with some of the juries. That's the unfortunate thing. So we're trying to educate everybody across the board. So the officer's going to want some detailed information from you when you get your statements, um, when you, if you have to make a report of a crime. Um, sometimes it's going to be short time. Sometimes it'll be weeks. But it's more likely that it's going to be months or years before something is, is really caught to a point where you feel like you need to report to the police. So one of the suggestions we have is that whenever you're doing your financial affairs, if it's anything outside the, the norm, keep it in a journal. And that's regardless of how old you are. If you're dealing with a contractor, for example, that's a great place to keep a journal because things can change on a building site left and right all the time. If it's something like, I always pay my electric bill on the second of the month, that's not necessarily something you need to document because it is documented in your bank account. Here on the second, looking back for Nine years, she's always paid her electric bill on the second. So we know that that's to be true of your habit. But for other things, you may want to keep a journal just to keep track of dates, amounts, things of that nature. When you make a report to the police, you'll have, you'll have to fill out a statement in most cases. Um, they may do an interview with you. If you have that journal with you, it's a lot easier to be able to point to dates. One example I'll give you that I learned about in a training was um, there was an, a senior citizen who was living in California and she had a lot of problems with somebody calling and heavy breathing. And it obviously creeped her out. And then he began talking about how sexy she was and was asking her what kind of nylon she wore. And, you know, she was 82, I think, when she was receiving these calls. <laughs> and so she would re report a couple of them to the police. But this was, this was back before we began looking at elder abuse. And so they would, you know, do their little call for service. Mrs. Smith called about the stockings again, you know, that kind of thing. And then she began noticing that things were missing in her house. Mm. And they were always her stockings, her cotton roll-up stockings that she would wear were the only things missing. And then she noticed that a couple pairs of her undergarments were missing as well. And so the officers would treat it like a burglary and then find out, well, your jewelry's still here and there's you know money laying on the table that was still here. So maybe she just misplaced her stockings or you know whatever. And it wasn't until there were actual chips out of her door frame where you could see the door had been popped open that they began to take it more seriously. 
and they you know and eventually they referred it to their detectives in house who looked at this and you know she gave them a copy of her journal every phone call she got the date and time exactly what happened during it that kind of journal led them to show that she'd been stalked for the better part of six months by a rapist who targeted senior citizens who was living four doors down from her and so that was what was able to make the case and that's an, a different case outside of financial but believe me if that worked for a non-financial case having documentation on a financial case makes it that much better plus anything you write down you know we all have moments of, of forgetting details if you have to testify you can have that journal to refresh your memory if the defense attorney says well now did it happen on the fifth or the sixth it would be perfectly acceptable and the prosecutor could say to you is there anything that would refresh your memory well yeah my journal oh, happened on the fifth end of story so if you were if anybody has concerns about testifying there are things we can do to make it easier so if you do have cognitive issues, as I mentioned before, go talk to your doctor. See what's going on, Give them, tell them specifically what you're concerned about. Um, chances are your doctor has heard it or has seen it in the past and knows whether it's something to do further evaluation on or if it's something that can be remedied by a medication switch. Do you have a question? Excuse me, yeah, maybe you'll address this later, but I get a lot of phone calls dead, I call them dead phone calls. You know, you say, hello, hello, mm -hmm. hello, nobody's there. So the, so to repeat for our webcast people, the question was, I get a lot of these dead phone calls where I pick up the phone and say hello, hello, and there's nobody there. Do you have caller ID by any chance? Yeah, but sometimes it just says incoming phone call. Yeah, but sometimes it just says incoming phone call, okay. Is there a pattern, you might wanna look at, is there a pattern to when the calls are coming in? Well, is it someone checking to see if you're home to know whether or not your house is, is empty or not right. at this time? I think I'll keep a journal. I, I, I <laughs> strongly recommend that, that's yeah. That's a great idea. Because it's entirely possible that it's a series of wrong numbers. I know that, um, just as a personal story, there's a very, very nice lady who lives somewhere in town here that goes to call her friend who lives in Florida and the first three digits of our phone number happen to be the area code for that friend. And so if she only dials seven numbers, she gets us. <laughs> and so sometimes she will, you know, she doesn't dial the one person, she'll dial the seven numbers and she gets us and we, we wish her a nice day and, and she tries again. It could be somebody misdialing, but if you keep a log of it, it'll give you a better idea of what's going on and whether or not it's something you need to take further steps on. So you can also do an honest self-assessment of yourself. You know, in the case of the keys, that's an extreme that I, that I used is, is an extreme example because we all know our habits and the things that we do. But be honest with yourself. Can you still do this? There's no shame if you say, I need some help. Because quite honestly, there are more services available to help than there have ever been before. You can also turn to a trusted third party. New Hampshire Legal Services have actually uh, started a pilot project with a senior law line. I believe there's contact information for that out in the lobby. I know from past experiences that seniors are having mixed results with whether they can actually talk to somebody there or if they're getting their questions answered. But I would say that's one place you can start. If you don't have an attorney or an accountant or a minister or somebody else that you trust that has no stake in in your life basically other than being a trusted person in your life. And remember that police are understanding and they won't necessarily jump to conclusions. When you're in doubt, report it. One of the best examples that was given in the trainings that we gave law enforcement that 
um, I've talked to some of the officers that it keeps coming back to them is the adult protective service worker had a case of a woman who who described the little green men who were coming and stealing out of her house from time to time and of course if you're going to be closed-minded you're thinking oh yeah sure and and she did have dementia to be fair she she had low-grade dementia but she talked about the little green men and if you were being closed-minded you might dismiss that completely well it turns out that these guys wore green t-shirts so they were shorter so they were kind of little green men so police know that now and and when she tells that story and she tells it far better than I ever will um, you can see the officers go, aha, I get it. And that's where all of the officers are now in the state, that they know to look beyond the obvious and to understand some of the challenges of aging. So now I want to talk about identity theft specifically, and I know there's a lot about it out in the media and a lot of information that's available in different places, but for people that might not have heard of it, um, it is one of the fastest growing crimes. I think it ties directly back to the economy being sort of stale at this point in time. Children and seniors are the number one targets. Children because they've not had a chance to make any mistakes. And in fact, we know of a case where a young woman turned 18, decided to go and get herself a cell phone, and was denied because her credit was so lousy. And that led her to say, um, I turned 18 three days ago, I don't understand how my credit could be lousy. And the answer is when your stepmother uses your identity when you're 12. Seniors are on the other end of the spectrum. You've got fantastic credit ratings for the most part. And, and so as a result, they want to use your stuff too. And, and Ryan's case that we'll talk about in a moment is, is completely with identity theft. I forget how many different identities, it'll be here on the slide, how many different cards were applied for in this woman's name, but it's, it's, it is growing. There are other ways to steal your identity too. Mail fraud is one of them where they simply um, send you fraudulent documents in the mail. They look like they might be legit. They look like they might be applications for credit cards or for a magazine and you send in all your personal information and you never get the product that you've been promised but suddenly there's a chase open in your name. Purse snatching, pickpocketing, those are good places to grab your personal information because if you think about what's in your wallet or what's in your pocketbook, that's pretty much like everything you need to deal in the civilized world. You know, some people carry their social security cards, your driver's license, your credit cards themselves are all in there. Um, good Samaritans that might find your wallet in a parking lot later, mm -hmm. except maybe they didn't find it in the parking lot, they're simply making it look as though they found it, might have copied down information prior to handing it over. Um, I do know of a case at the uh, Home Depot that occurred here uh, about five or six years ago, a woman signed up for one of the Home Depot credit cards while she was making her purchase to get the 10% off or whatever. And um, so she did that and about two weeks later, all the stuff starts coming in with this bill that somebody's been online shopping with her Home Depot credit card. And it's not the one she applied for, it's another one that her information was used at right there in the store by the employee that took her information. So happily that was an easy case for the police to solve in some respects, but she still had a, I think it was eight or nine months before she got everything straightened out so that her credit rating only reflected her stuff. And there are tax scams. They make phone calls, they send letters, they say I'm from the IRS, you're behind on a payment, if you just give me your bank account, we can take care of this right now. Um, 
my favorite is there's one right now, and I don't know if any of you have gotten it, but we've gotten it at our house several times. They leave us a voicemail saying, we are calling you about your credit card. Important information, please call us back. Or, or if you get them on the phone, they say, I'm calling you about your credit card. We need to do a check because we think your account's been compromised. And I said to the guy, I said, which credit card? And he said, your, your, your Wells Fargo. I don't have a Wells Fargo credit yeah. card. <laughs> but what if he had guessed one of the banks that I do have a credit card with? You know, that's one of the things, and they'll, then they'll ask for the 16 digits as well as the three digits on the back to verify that you are the person you're talking to. And in the meantime, you can guess what they do with that. Shoulder surfing is one of the more interesting ones, and I do have a case actually that occurred in Lincoln a number of years ago that's related to this. It's where basically, let's say you're doing some online shopping and you've decided to do it at the library, a public area. Somebody may glance over your shoulder and be able to tell, you know, sometimes when you type in your credit card if you're shopping online, it'll just show up as X's, but somebody can watch your fingers, which keys you're striking in. In the Lincoln case, actually, uh, a lady was calling in to make a reservation at one of the hotels and um, she had a very, very bad connection and she was apparently a little bit hard of hearing and so the clerk was trying to verify the credit card that she was giving him to book her rooms mm -hmm. and said it and it had to say it in an increasingly louder voice because she couldn't hear him to verify the credit card and in the meantime there was a busboy writing down all of that information who turned around and then began using it. Again, that was an easy one. The, the police, I think, like they had him in custody within like a day. A very easy one for the police, but still that person needs to go back and clean up their credit rec record when they never should have had to in the first place. And then there are a number of online scams. Um, they'll send fraudulent emails from banks or government agencies, you know, the same kind of deal. You're behind on your IRS payment. Um, you, we need your social security number, things of that nature. Sometimes they'll direct you to scam websites to enter that information. I know I clicked on, I was doing my Christmas cards through Walgreens with the photos, and I Googled Walgreens photo, and I clicked on the first site, and happily, I've got way too much protective software on my computer. It blocked the entire page for me. But it said walgreens.photo.com, and I thought, of course, that's Walgreens photo. It was not. So the ways that you can protect yourself are never share your full name online. Use a handle or an online nickname only. Never share your address, your social security number, none of your personal information ever online. Don't share your login or password details. Um, you know, my husband and I have a little password book because we've got so many different accounts and it's hidden in a safe in our house so that if we forget a password, we've got it, but it's not just written down somewhere randomly that if a burglar broke in, God forbid, that he would find it very easily. Never respond to calls, mail, emails requesting to verify your personal information. Check your credit reports regularly. You can get one free credit report at freecreditreport.com a year. If you haven't had occasion to check it, go ahead and check it. And not just for, for fraud going on, but also, you know, I some of the older accounts maybe that haven't dropped off or that need to drop off or things of that nature just to make sure it's accurate information. you have a question? I swear every time I've tried to check out one of those free credit reports it ended up that they wanted payment for something that it wasn't free. I, but I've heard you're supposed to be able to get one. I believe, yeah, check them out because some of them claim it, some of them do not. I know each of the credit reporting bureaus are required to give you one 
per year for free. Um, I can talk to you more about that too, how you can find the right site for that afterwards mm -hmm. if you want. And going backwards, you said never give your name and address on uh, online. Mm -hmm. Use mm -hmm. a handle? Yeah. Well, then how are you going to, if I go to Amazon and I want... Well, so, so the question is, uh, we had two questions there. One was that um, one of the participants here in the room was having problems actually getting a free credit report. Um, and you have to check very carefully with which one you're clicking on, and I'm going to speak with her afterwards. The second question came in and said, well, if, if you're not supposed to give your full name or your address, how can you possibly shop at, at, at Amazon.com, for example? This is talking about, um, I, I should have clarified this, so I thank you for bringing it up. If you trust the website you're at, you can give them the information. But for example, let's say that you want to sell that ugly futon that you have in your basement and you put it on Craigslist. Don't put any of that information on Craigslist because it's available to everybody. There's no secure server there to protect your information. Um, likewise, in, in most of the websites that you can do shopping through will indicate whether or not they are certified as secure. And a lot of them, and a lot of them, um, it, it's it's more complicated than I can explain, mostly because I don't understand it. But they do have measure certain security measures that basically scramble the information as it transmits so that it can't necessarily be compromised. But every year we do hear about sites that have been compromised by hackers. So that's one of the things I I recommend is if you can do payments through something like PayPal, where PayPal is kind of the middleman. So you've got your credit card information going to PayPal. PayPal pays whoever the vendor is, but the vendor never knows your initial credit card. So it's, it's sort of a stopgap measure. It also protects you from fraud in that um, I know the Sheriff's Department has investigated over the years a number of cases where somebody has found a really nice antique tractor or a hot classic car on Craigslist. And they've offered to pay for the shipping to bring it up you know, to here, there, or everywhere. And so the way the typical scam works is we're going to need $2,500 up front so that I can get it shipped up to you. So that it just gets wire transferred using Western Union or something like that. And then uh, it becomes, oh, uh, we have to do the tax title in this state out and then into your state. So that's going to be another $1,000. So they wire another $1,000. And basically there's always an excuse for more money until the person's out of money and then they stop communicating whatsoever. But in the meantime, all that money's gone through Western Union and there's no way to get it back. And a lot of times, I mean, my personal favorite was to find out that there, there was actually a car, they traced it back, and the person posting it never owned it whatsoever. He, he took the picture off of like a, a, a car classic kind of website, you know, where they were showing pictures of cars that were at a car classic. He simply cut and pasted it and said, yeah, this is my car. But he was... He was dumb enough to actually leave the license plate in, so officers were able to trace it backwards to where, where it came from. So, But nine times out of ten when they're doing that, too, they're using emails that you can't trace, and that makes it very frustrating for everybody. And you're going to want to make sure you check your bank accounts regularly and monitor your incoming mail. And by monitoring incoming mail, I mean like the mail in your mailbox. If you know, I'll use your electric bill, if you know that the electric bill always comes to your house during that first week of the month and you haven't seen it yet, you need to start asking some questions. Not just, you know, find out where, where your mail is then because there's no reason that your electric bill, something that's that routine, would be missing for that long. Yes? Uh, I've been afraid to do any business on the computer or order anything on the computer. You've been afraid to do any uh, business simply, or anything I on the computer? I simply use it just for email contacting friends. I simply 
will not do business on the computer because I don't know how to protect myself. And I can't say that I blame you. Yeah, it is very difficult to this um, for people out in the webcast. This lady in the room just refuses to do business of any kind on the internet, and I think that that's that's the safest way, quite honestly. I mean, I m my husband and I have slowly gotten to a point where we do our banking, <laughs> and I know everybody looks at us and. You, you people are both prosecutors and you still do your banking online. Yes, we do because um, our bank does have secureness. We've got a, um, it's, it's basically a policy with the bank that errors made on their behalf are going to be covered. Um, now, it doesn't save my personal information, but I, for me and, and the convenience of it, I'm willing to take a little bit of a risk. But we only use one credit card online and it has a $2,000 limit. So if somebody really wants to steal it, good luck. <laughs> You know, at least it's going to be limited what's going to happen. And the uh, the other cards don't go anywhere near it. The debit card, I never use shopping ever, ever, ever. So, but I think your your way is the safest. <laughs> okay. Hey. <laughs> so a member of the Lincoln Police Department has emailed in to say. The free credit report can be found at annualcreditreport.com, all one word, A-N-N-U-A-L-C-R-E-D-I-T-R-E-P-O-R-T.com. Thank you, JJ. <laughs> R-E-P-O-R-T.com. R-E-P-O-R-T.com. Let me see. You got it? Okay. Melissa, you tell JJ I'm proud of him? JJ, the chief says that he's proud of you. And I'll make sure I'll, I'll put that into a slide too for people that are watching that um, I that I didn't get a, get it across very well. I'm going to skip over his in the event that he's going to come back um, because it is very extensive. He put a lot of hours into it. It was. Um, it was the kind of investigation that the Attorney General's office would have handled in the state at one time, but because of the way crime is happening, we're having to handle more and more sophisticated crimes at the county level, um, and happily we're getting the training for it, and our bosses are giving us the okay on it. But One of the overriding things in his particular case, though, were isolating behaviors, and this is just something we wanted to put out there for yourselves and for your friends and your family that may also be seniors, because Nine times out of ten, somebody who's being isolated knows they're being isolated, but they don't know how to stop it. And you as their friend, you know, you might notice that Mary, your friend from church, hasn't been to church for a couple weeks now. And you heard some rumor that maybe she was sick, but, you know, you're not close enough friends maybe to go and check on her or things of that nature. But these are the kinds of things that they rely on as kind of their inroad um, in those cases of trusted friend abuse. So... Some of the isolating behaviors that we have seen, um, not just in this county, but across the state, are convincing a senior that it's time to move in with family or otherwise cease independent living. There are lots and lots of good reasons why you might want to move in with somebody. I mean, um, we have a very active toddler. She's very, very active. And we have asked my mother-in-law, who is now down in Florida, who's um, become a widow in the past year, if she would like to come up and live with us, help us with the baby, that way you won't be alone, you know. And, you know, she she's resisted so far because 
she wants to do her own thing and why wouldn't you why wouldn't anybody want to do that but we do see that it's easier for the abuser to get access to money and other things if the seniors living under their roof if somebody stops giving rides to stores to the bank to church to social gatherings or hiding car keys in some instances that might rise to the level of a crime believe it or not called false imprisonment when you restrict someone's movements that's why it's important to report this to the police but if you think about it you know if, if think about my own grandmothers you know my one grandmother never learned how to drive and the other one just never got her driver's license if she wanted something and couldn't leave the house she was in quite a pickle and it was the same as if she couldn't walk to be true because they they both lived in very rural areas if they never allow the senior to answer the phone or the door not allowing the senior to use the phone or the internet why would they do that because they don't want that senior to have an out to have a way to reach out for help um, and that's one thing that we see again and again and again so if you're calling a friend maybe she's your bridge friend and she's not answering the phone it's always her daughter and she's never available she's always in the shower or she's always taking a nap I would be concerned I would be very concerned if people suddenly begin changing their doctors their lawyers their accountants all those trusted professionals that you keep in your life their physical therapists their care providers abruptly you might want to ask some more questions especially if your friend says well you know I was really happy with this housekeeping agency but you know my daughter talked me into these people well how come if you're happy with who's providing you service why is this person so insistent on switching that's a time to begin asking questions convincing the senior to allow someone else to handle money even though the senior is able to handle finances all right now there are lots of good reasons you would do this you know one example that I'm going to talk about that happened in Coas County started innocently enough the father said to his son I want to make you on my joint account so that if I get sick and I'm in the hospital you can keep paying my bills because I want to keep the house I want to you know and and this way it'll be easier and that's true that is much easier that's a really good reason um, what happened next is different but we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment that's a very good reason even if you can you can handle your finances but it's when the senior doesn't see it that way and yet the the, the son the daughter the niece the nephew the granddaughter the grandson the friend is pressuring you to add them to a bank account that's when you have to start asking questions if a senior has mobility issues if obstacles are put in their place or if their walker say say the walkers on the other side of the room this is something that the police officers are looking for like that because without your walker if you need it to walk you might as well be tied to that chair in the same way if your wheelchair is across the room from your bed how are you possibly going to get to it so these are the kinds of things that we look at as sort of warning flags eyeglasses hearing aids other devices are removed not taking people in for to get the batteries changed in your hearing aid if you can't hear what's going on it's the same as though you're deaf if you can't see properly because your eyeglasses aren't on how can you see what's going on not only does the risk of injury increase but it's an isolating behavior um, Tracy Culberson who used to prosecute for Hillsborough County and the AG's office talked about a case where gradually the volume on the phone was turned down and so it was it was part of a bunch of psychological abuse 
to make the older person think that they were um, sicker and weaker than they were. So that in addition to kind of that crazy making behavior I talked about with the keys, now they think they're also losing their hearing at a pretty rapid rate, and, and it wasn't true at all. Okay, so in, in Adam's case, he did this with his son. He got his son signed on as a joint account, <coughs> joint bank account. And the idea was that if I get sick, you can take care of paying my bills. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. He had a pretty massive stroke and went into the hospital and was semi-comatose for a couple of weeks and then needed a lot of rehabilitation. Um, he was approaching 80. I don't think he'd reached 80 yet at the time. Um, but basically, it took him about six to seven months of recovery before he could actually speak in a way that people could understand him routinely. Another couple of months after that, before he felt like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make it out of here. You know, I, I'm going to make it out. And so at that time, <coughs> he asked his son to bring him all the bank statements for the past seven months. He, he just wanted to check his finances, see that, you know, things, how things were. And the son had an excuse the first couple of times that he was visiting. Oh, oh I forgot him. Oh, they're on the table. Oh, couldn't find them all, whatever his excuses were. Mm -hmm. And after about a month, six weeks of this, Adam got kind of mad. This is my money. It's my bank account. Bring me those statements. And then the son said, well, you know, do, do you not trust me? I mean, do you not trust me to take care of you? I'm, I mean, I'm your son. And... For some people that would have worked, Adam was a little on the crotchety side and it didn't work with him. And so he called his sister-in-law up and said, you're taking me to the bank because I'm getting my bank statements. And that's when he found somewhere in the neighborhood of $20,000 missing mm -hmm. from a variety of accounts. And it's interesting, we were able to follow the money out of his account and into a savings account in the son and daughter-in-law's name. Had to go through a couple of transactions, but we found it. Um, there were uh, ski packages that were purchased for the kids, for Adam's grandchildren during this time, um, that he didn't really actually approve of. He, he never authorized any of these gifts. Um, there were car payments made um, to one of, I can't remember if it was the son's vehicle or the daughter-in-law's vehicle, but a number of expenditures like that where they came to about $20,000 that was missing from Adam's account. Um, and Adam demanded the money back from his son. His son said, you can take me to court. I, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, we had a joint account. That means I could access your money just the same as you could. And that went on for a couple more months until finally one of the nurses at the assisted living facility where he was still rehabbing heard about it. She made the report to Adult Protective Services in Vermont who in turn said, okay, but all this happened in New Hampshire and he's a New Hampshire resident, so we're gonna refer it back to New Hampshire, who then in turn referred it to the county attorney's office um, who had a conflict. They identified the conflict early, they sent it to the AG's office, AG's office tried to figure out who was gonna get it, and it comes to my desk. And unfortunately, somewhere between the time it was landed at the AG's office and it got to my desk, Adam passed away. And so, because Adam was always of sound mind, we had a problem. We couldn't prosecute any of it because we had no witness that could say, I didn't authorize any of this. We can't use his statements that he made to police. We can't use his statements he made to his nurses, to his sister-in-law, any of those. The rules of evidence don't allow it. And so we weren't able to do anything. So what we, from the law enforcement standpoint, picked up on this is that even when he seems to be doing really well, we need to expedite 
these cases very quickly because things can happen. Financial powers of attorney. Um, when I first started, I can tell you there were a couple of cases that it looked like somebody had utilized their powers of attorney to benefit financially. But kind of the idea back when I started was, well, if it's power of attorney, they get to do that. And it's a little bit like if you went to a brain surgeon for the indigestion you've been having, he might have some ideas about how to treat your indigestion, but probably not as much as somebody who specializes in gastrointestinal issues. That's what it is with criminal attorneys looking at other parts of the law sometimes, because we know criminal law very well, but this probate stuff, yeah, we had that like our first or second year of law school. We may not be on top of it. We've since gone back to look at it, and one of the problems we have in this state is that the power of attorney statutes are a little squishy. And I know that there are at least two prosecutors watching right now. They can agree with me, they can disagree with me, but I think they're a little bit squishy sometimes. And so the best thing I can tell you about a financial power of attorney if you choose to execute one, and a medical power of attorney as well, is to read it very carefully. Make sure that it says exactly what you want to happen in the circumstances that you want them to happen in. Don't leave any room for fudge room or you know things like that because that's, it's the fudge room is where the problems begin. And always consult with an attorney if you have any questions about how it's being drafted up. I know LegalZoom.com offers all kinds of financial documents for $9.99 or whatever to draft up. But really, if you want to make sure that they fit under the state law and they're going to meet the standards that you want, you should consult with an attorney. All right, so this is one of the other real things that we see very often, credit card use and utility use. So there was a, an older gentleman who had been in a horrible car accident in his 40s. And so he was not only a senior that we were looking at this case, but he was also physically disabled. And specifically, he was blind and had some uh, real mobility issues because of a broken hip from the car accident. And he had a lot of services in place to help him out. And um, one of the things that he had was there was a, a service that was coming in basically to provide his housekeeping. And then I think it was TriCap was helping him with his finances. And so the way he kept track of things, he, he loved to buy stuff online from television ads. He was a sucker for the SCN on TV stuff, you know. And so to keep track of where his things were, he kept his credit card under a placemat that was on his kitchen table because that way it didn't matter. He didn't have to rifle through a drawer or through his wallet. He knew exactly where the credit card was when he wanted to order something. And so when his new credit card came in, because the old one had, you know, was getting close to expiring, he took that one out, put the new one in, and simply tossed the old one because he figured it's going to be expired soon enough. His housekeeper picked it up out of the trash, put the old one back under, and took the new one and began using it like her own personal card. And so the reason I have Enfield, Lebanon, Newport, and Grantham down is because the gentleman lived in Enfield. She would go to Lebanon for her shopping, and then she lived in Newport. So she would hit the store in Grantham, the convenience store in Grantham, on her way home to Newport. So all four of those towns actually end up having unauthorized use of a credit card charges in them. And so when police, in, in TriCap is the one that caught it, they basically said, what are you doing? <laughs> How did you even get to Grantham? Nobody gave you a ride out there. And that's when they discovered what was going on. When police, um, and this is uh, Detective Holland from the Enfield Police Department investigated this one, and when he approached her, she said, oh, he told me it was fine. He told me I had permission to do it because, you know, I, I buy him groceries. 
Well, one of those 20 transactions was at Price Chopper, and all the rest of them were in other places. And so Detective Holland said, okay, let's, let's assume your, your story. All right, what about these? He said I could. He knows I'm underpaid. And so he was offering you know, his card to me to kind of make up for the difference in me being underpaid. And of course the gentleman said, uh, no, no. So when they asked her again, she said, well, we did, but we have a contract for me to pay back the money. See, here's, here's the contract. And um, she had forged a signature on this contract she was presenting to the police officer who said to her, what do you think, I'm stupid? You know? And she ultimately did plead guilty to it. Um, unfortunately, he had passed away. He, he was, it was advised to him to go to Texas for his health. And he got to the hotel after getting out of the airport and um, actually had had a clot formed during the flight and, and passed away. But um, she was prosecuted. She will never work for um, elderly or uh, developmentally disabled adults again because she's on the registry that they maintain here in the state. So um, another woman in Enfield uh, had a granddaughter who wanted to open a, I'm sorry, Yes, a granddaughter who wanted to open a, a cell phone account when she was in high school. Her parents wouldn't let her, and so Nana wanted to be nice, and so Nana offered to buy it in her name, you know, basically start the credit account in her name. And the girl did everything she was supposed to, paid her bills on time as far as Nana knew. Um, you know, always had the bills sent to her house, even though it was in Nana's name. And Nana didn't think too much about it. And then six years later, she's getting some ugly phone calls from people who work for um, a collection agency that she had a, uh, it was one of the satellite companies, she had an outstanding bill with them in excess of $500. And she said, you know, basically you're out of your mind, I have Comcast, I've never had satellite TV. And they, they showed it to her and the granddaughter had gone back after paying those bills all those years <laughs> and applied for DirecTV or whatever it was using grandma's information. Ran that bill up, then they found the other satellite provider that she, you know, once they shut her off, she went and signed up with the other one, and they had run that one up as well, and another cell phone. So this is just to let you know that, because I'm sure that if the granddaughter had missed even one payment in the beginning, that would have been that, and it all would have been cut off, but because she made those payments on time, Grandma trusted her. And so that's one of the things that we see sometimes. So loaning money. Um, as Benjamin Franklin said, neither a borrower nor a lender be. <laughs> but basically, don't loan any money that you can't afford to miss if you are never repaid. Um, you know, no matter who it is, and this is this is good advice regardless of who you are. Um, it's just that seniors happen to have access to more money sometimes because you do have your nest eggs. Ask questions about what the money will be used for. You're not being nosy. I mean, think about the last time you applied for any line of credit with a bank for a mortgage for a house or a car loan. How many questions do they ask you? How many pages do you have to fill out? Why should you be any different if you're loaning money to somebody? Ask them specific questions about what is this money being used for? When are you going to pay me back? Let's set up a payback table right now, even if it's one of your grandkids. And even if he promises grandma on a stack of Bibles, I will pay you back with my next paycheck. Get it in writing. Get it in writing. Um, William's case happened in the town of Woodstock, which is next to Lincoln up north. Um, William's case identifies a, a lot of the same issues that we've talked about. Um, William and his wife uh, met later in life. They were both divorced. 
and found each other and got married, even though their adult children were not in favor of them getting married. Um, and so as a result, they were kind of a little bit estranged from their children. A um, couple of years after they got married, William retired from a good job, had a pension. Um, they decided to sell their two homes in the state of Massachusetts and build their dream cottage up in New Hampshire and retire together and, and live their happy life. And that's exactly what they did. And they found a local contractor who gave them a good price quote, finished the job under time, under, under what he had quoted them. Um, they were very happy. And a couple months after they moved in, um, William's wife was diagnosed with mid-level Alzheimer's and it advanced very rapidly and he watched her deteriorate for three years. She, he was her 24-hour caregiver and um, when she passed, he, I, I, I spoke with him directly, he told me that he's never felt that alone in his whole life, ever, and that he had no purpose left anymore because he'd spent every moment of every day for three years with her and now that she was gone, he wasn't exactly sure what to do. His kids were um, not as supportive as he might have needed them to be, but that was because of things that had happened in the past. And he said he just continued to spiral. He didn't really know a lot of people because he couldn't socialize. He was taking care of her all the time. And he did tell me that at one point he considered purchasing a gun and ultimately decided he couldn't do that to his grandkids and really wasn't sure what he was going to do. And then uh, members of a church knocked on his door one day, invited him to come to their church, and he did. And he said, I felt that sense of community that I used to have when I was working, you know, and when I lived back home and everything else. And he got very involved in the church. And one person in particular, David, um, really took a shine to him. And they decided to do Bible study together. David was much younger than him. But William in time became kind of a surrogate grandfather to David's children. And, and William said he felt very loved. It was a very family-oriented kind of thing. And so when David came to him and said, oh, and oh, I should mention too, David was the one that built their cottage initially. He didn't know him at the, you know, made the connection several years later. David said to him, um, look, I've got this impossible client. He keeps making all of these changes in building his, his mansion and he's not giving me any money for the overages and I, I just need I just need a little bit of money to get me to the next stage of building. If I can just get a little bit of money, when I get to the next stage of building, he'll give me another check and I'll be able to finish the project on time and everything else. And so William of course said, of, of course I'll help you. You're my friend. You've taken me in. We're family. But William's got no real assets other than the house, so he takes out a line of equity on his house and he writes David a check for $10,000. And you know, and he knows that in about two weeks he's going to complete that stage of building. He's going to get paid back, and he's going to get his ten thousand dollars back. Except that when that day gets here, David comes back to him and says, oh, "He's made more changes, and he won't pay for them. Please, I, I just need ten more thousand dollars." And this goes on until forty-seven thousand dollars of equity has been taken out against his retirement cottage to give to David. And when David comes back a fifth time, William says, look, I, I, I don't have any equity left in the house. And David says, oh. And then he stops returning his phone calls. He stops getting invited over for dinner, just cuts him out immediately. Now, for, William also met a much younger woman at church, um, and they were spending a great deal of time together. He was not in a position where he felt like he could get married again, but it was really nice to have somebody in a romantic way in his life. 
and she's the one that actually goaded him into going to the police with this. And we thought we had a really good case. We, we were able to show that during that time period that he was borrowing, borrowing, borrowing from William, that he had received three times that amount from his customer for not only to cover the changes that the customer made, but also a little bit extra because the guy said, look, I know I'm inconveniencing you with all these changes, so I'll give you a little extra. So he had received something in the neighborhood of three times that $47,000 in that time period, and he never paid him back. And we took it to trial. Um, I considered it a personal victory that the defense attorney came to me after the jury got the case and began deliberating to say, so are you, are you going to move to revoke his bail if he's convicted? That's how he said it to me. But the jury found him not guilty because under New Hampshire law, we had to prove that at the moment he got that first check, he never intended to pay him back. And among other things along the way, he had given him $10,000 of the 47 back. And so the jury said, well, if he's given some of the money back, we can't say that he meant to always you know, steal the rest of it, which was very disappointing to us. You know, it was, it was very disappointing. Um, but so that's, and, and so William specifically asked me that if I ever used his case in a training to say, don't lend money that you can't afford to miss. Mm -hmm. Because he's in his 80s right now, his wife is, um, approaching a retirement age. She had planned to take early retirement, but she can't because they have a mortgage payment. And he said, I never thought I would have a mortgage payment in my 80s, but here I am, so don't lend money out. So you have a question? So so is anybody working on um, changing that law that says you have to prove they never intended to pay it back? I hope somebody is. <laughs> I really do. I mean, it seems, how can you prove that? It's remarkably difficult, yeah. And But what they're trying to, to cut down on, I think. The, the way the Supreme Court decided it, I think, is to, I'm sorry, I have to repeat this for the webcast, I'm sorry. So for people on the web, um, the question was just asked, is somebody working on changing that law? Because it seems like it's really hard to prove that at the moment somebody took the money that they never intended to pay it back. Um, the Supreme Court decided that, I think, in part to take those kinds of like building contract issues out of the criminal arena completely. So let's say that, um, you know, you're going to build a house for me and I give you $20,000, you know, to start off with. I think you've done $10,000 worth of work. You think you've done $20,000. I go to the police and I say, she owes me $10,000 worth. I think it was to keep the police out of issues like that. In most cases, using theft as a charge, it's pretty easy. They took your pocketbook and they ran down the street. I think a jury could say, yeah, you didn't intend to give that woman back a pocketbook. It's when we try to change things. I mean. I really think we need to revamp our laws to include more cases for things like this, but it's a matter of having to rewrite and go to the legislature and, and get enough support for the change, because we in criminal law especially don't like to change our law from year to year. It makes it a little bit difficult to enforce. But I agree with you 100%, and I think somebody should take this case as a, as a, as a test. There are a ton of internet scams in addition. Um, so there's the Nigerian print scam. And for people that haven't heard that, it's I'm a Nigerian prince. I, I have access to all this money in America, but I, I just need a little bit here in order to, and, and I'll give you access to my, to my money in America. The Australian lottery is similar in that you've won the Australian lottery. All you need to do is send us $1,500 or whatever for the processing fee. And, and some of these are pretty easy, you know, um, 
ask but yourself. I didn't enter it. Well, you know, honestly, if you didn't enter it, you probably didn't win it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, bogus charity sites are some of the more, I think, seedy ones. Um, I know we were, Ryan and I actually made a point of looking um, because the Boston uh, Marathon bombing actually happened right around the last time that we presented here at the Resource Center. And we know that they had those scam sites up within 24 hours of the actual bombing, looking for solicitations for the victims. And of course, it, it never went to the victims at all. The Craigslist fraudulent sellers I told you about earlier, those are out there. So what you can do to protect yourself. So for any of these you know, bogus emails that you've gotten, just delete the emails. Don't bother reading them. Don't bother reporting them. The reason is that we can't trace them, or when we can trace them, we are tracing them outside of the country where we can't do anything about them after that. You can also check the spam filter on your email to be a little bit stronger. Double check all your websites for accuracy um, when you're going to a place. And, and I'll tell you from personal experience, there's actually a community action group in um, the Chicago area that I, I got to work with um, for some minority victim issues. And I just went to type in their website and um, I got hit with a bunch of viruses <laughs> and I got in trouble with our IT department because I was going to an unauthorized site and all this kind of stuff and I thought this is crazy I typed it in exactly it was one letter difference one letter difference and um, they believed that it was um, just some hacker randomly trying testing and using their website to see if whether he could do it or not as opposed to an actual target but um, I still had to get my computer cleaned, you know, so double check them at all times. Um, and as I said before, I strongly recommend if you're going to buy anything, utilize something like PayPal um, as opposed to a, a wire transfer because at least with PayPal, one of the ways it can work is, you know, I'm going to buy this Ming vase online <laughs> and so I use my PayPal account. PayPal takes the money out of my credit card and it just sits there until I can verify, yep, I got my Ming vase and then they pass it along. If I, if I can go back to them and say, you sent me a piece of plastic, I can get the money back from PayPal that way as I return it. All right, phone solicitations. This is one that was quite popular um, around here uh, about six months ago. I know um, there's at least one person in the county that did lose money from the scam of your grandson is in trouble in Canada. So I don't know if any of you have heard this, but basically the way it works is your phone rings and there's either a young woman or a young man crying profusely on the other end, saying, Grandma, 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 it's me. And you say, who? Your granddaughter. Of course, your first reaction is Susie or whatever your granddaughter's name may be. Yeah, it's me. What's going on? Oh, we went up to Canada. And they go up to Canada to go fishing, to go to a concert, whatever. And the story is always the same, that they're coming back down they get stopped at the border and somebody put a marijuana joint in her pocketbook yeah. or in his coat pocket. And now the Canadian authorities are really mad at him because he snuck into the country and he had drugs on him and, and everything else and he needs to post bail. And in the case that we know about that legitimately happened, he said he needed $1,500 for bail. And so the grandmother did not even hesitate. She went right to Western Union and sent the $1,500 that she was instructed to. She gets home and she waits. The phone rings and he says, oh my God, and now they want to have a bail hearing and I don't have an attorney. Can you send another $1,500 for an attorney? 
So at this point, she says, well, I, I got I to make some transfers around, but yeah, hold on. And that's the point at which um, her husband said, did, did we even call fill in the blank of their kids' names to see if that's where he is? So they, they called their children and said, no, he, he's sitting watching television right here. <laughs> but by then, the $1,500 was gone. You know, at least it stopped, stopped the, the bleeding, as it were. Um, that's very popular. And, and of course, what are they doing? They're playing on your emotions. Who wants to be the grandmother that's leaving her grandson in jail? Who wants to be the grandfather that's leaving his granddaughter in jail? Nobody. Of course you do whatever you can for your grandkids. Fake charity calls. Um, there was, for a while, the Benevolent Police Officers Association of New Hampshire was calling around. And so I said, oh, that's great. You know, I work as a prosecutor. Click. <laughs> the next time they called, my husband asked them to send him information by mail. And they said, uh, well, um, what's your address? And he said, well, you just told me that you got my name and address out of the phone book, so you should probably have my address already. I, 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 they had no idea what they were doing. So so protect yourself. Verify. Call. If you ever have a family member that's calling you saying, I need you to wire money, why don't you call the other family members? Check it out. Make sure it's, it's legit. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Ask for a callback number for some of these charities. Um, you'd be surprised. Some of them get routed. These fake charities get routed through call centers. And so you, you can tell right off the bat if you call them back that it's, it's a bogus charity. Um, legitimate charities have no problem mailing you written details. There was a firefighters association called and it sounded a little hinky to me. So I said, well, why don't you mail me that information? And so I got two tickets to their benefit concert and an appreciation for my donation sent to me in the mail. So I had to send them a donation. <laughs> <laughs> the trash thieves. Mail taken out of mailboxes including social security cards and credit card offers. Now, for most people, if your social security check is not in the mail, you're calling somebody because you know that that you know is coming in. You may not know about credit card offers coming in. It's not as common anymore to get them like I mean I remember when I started college I I would just get tons and tons and tons of it. They've reformed a lot of the credit laws now, but people with good credit are going to continue getting these credit card offers. You may not know that something's been taken out of your mailbox until something happens. So. Uh, discarded mail that you just chuck in the trash can that maybe you haven't shredded, they can get all the information off of that as well. And what's more, if you're if it's a credit card application, they can change the address. So it's not even going to be coming to you anyway, so you wouldn't know about it until it had run quite a ways up and maybe the bill collectors are looking for you. So, yes. I'm just curious, both my pension and my social security are automatically uh, put into my account. Why would anybody get it by check anymore when it's so easy to have it direct, direct deposit? deposit? Because some people don't want to do that because they just don't trust it or they want to have the ability to have it when they want it and have the control. There's lots of people don't, you know, I would be willing to bet that if it weren't for the fact that it's so much easier, my father would be one of those people that would actually want his check sent to him. Just mm. Some people are just old-fashioned yeah. or look at things differently. But that's why you should check your credit report then, because if somebody steals your identity, it's going to be showing up on your credit report, even if the address is different. And it's worth looking to make sure that with the credit report, it will list some of the addresses that are on file for you. That's worth looking at too, because maybe they're using your credit card and they're paying it and everything else, but they're still using your identity. And that's worth knowing. 
shred any sensitive information. I shred even my address on magazines. I ripped that off and I shred it because I don't know honestly who hangs out at the Lebanon landfill and I don't want to know. You know, <laughs> maybe that bobcat that they have out there. <laughs> Ryan has had a couple of dating scams. Um, the dating scams, they're called sweetheart scams as well. The, more and more these are targeting seniors because um, many of you are technologically savvy and maybe you look on Match.com if you've lost your partner um, or if you're divorced um, after a number of years. Um, he's had a couple where these are actually the kinds of things, asking for travel expenses, you know, so this um, woman started a relationship with a man. Um, he sent her a link for a website. He was an architect down in the Philadelphia area, I believe it was. Um, and it looked like a legitimate architectural site. And so she thought she'd made herself a little bit of a catch. She was about 10 years younger than her, somewhere in the, uh, right around 50, and she was in her 60s. And so, you know, he was a good looking guy from the pictures she had. And he was so wonderful and so sweet to chat with online. And then he said, you know, I think we should meet in person. And she said, oh, that would be great, yeah. So he said, you know, I got kind of all my money tied up in this big project I'm building, but if you sent me the money, I could fly into Manchester and, you know, rent a car and, and come up and see you. Great idea, she thinks, right? So she sends him $1,000, whatever it was that he asked for via Western Union wire transfer. And then two days or so before he was supposed to fly up, he said, something's come up and I have to go to Geneva. I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm just so sorry that we we're missing out on this, but I promise I'll make it up to you. She never got her money back. <laughs> they made another plan to meet. I believe she also picked up the bill. And then finally, I forget how it was, but I think she ended up finding the picture, the same picture he'd sent her on a different dating site with a different name. And that was kind of her tip off that maybe something <laughs> was up. <laughs> there are other occasions where sometimes, um, they may ask for living expenses, you know, particularly if they portray themselves as like, um, and not to besmirch women, but I've seen this with women more often than with men, where they say, yeah, and, and you know, my, my children's father stopped paying child support, and I'm just, I'm really struggling for rent, and I know we only know each other online, but could, could you spare a couple of hundred bucks? And a couple of hundred bucks here and a couple of hundred bucks there do add up over time. Um, so those are the kinds of like warning flags in addition to a reluctance or a refusal to meet in real life. If they always have an excuse about why they're meeting in real life, that's probably a tip off that you need to ask some more questions about your online romance. Okay. I'm going to go back and I'm going to have to do Ryan's case now. I'm guessing he was at the end of the docket now, it looks like, as opposed to the beginning. So in 2009, a report was filed at the Canaan Police Department by the sister of Millie. And again, all the names have been changed. Um, Millie has specifically told us that we can talk about her case. Um, her sister tells the patrol officer that she's been trying to call Millie by phone and cannot get her on the phone. There's always an excuse about why Millie can't come to the phone. And so she's concerned that something might be going on. She says Millie's living with her adult daughter and her adult granddaughter at this point. So the patrol officer goes to Millie's residence and speaks with Millie. And, you know, he knew enough to get Millie away from everybody else and just kind of said, you know, is something going on here? Your sister called. She's worried about you. 
nope, everything's fine, everything's fine. And when she notices that they are well out of earshot, she says, I think some money and some checks have been stolen from me. But that's all she tells him. And then she says, I think there are some credit card accounts open in my name, but I, I, I don't know that. So at that point, the officer says, okay, are you okay to stay here for now? Millie says, yeah, this is my home. I'm okay to stay here. Okay. So the officer comes back. He was a part-time officer, so he knew he wasn't going to be able to do a, an investigation in a quick amount of time, so he referred it over to Sergeant Porter. So about a week after that initial report, um, the Sergeant Porter is able to arrange with the sister to get Millie, because the sister actually lived down in Massachusetts. So she came up, picked up Millie, and drove her to the Canaan Police Department at a time when the daughter and the granddaughter were both gone. Um, this took a lot of coordination because they didn't want to tip them off that Millie was talking to the police. And <coughs> Millie didn't want them to know she was talking to the police either. So Millie tells uh, Sergeant Porter that she's noticed some money missing from her checking accounts. And she was the only person on her checking accounts. And so um, basically what she had told him was that she had, um, she'd had a medical issue. I believe she fell and broke her hip and was convalescing in a nursing home. And then she was making plans to move into her own apartment and to have a part-time caregiver come in just to check on her and help her out with day-to-day -day things. And then her granddaughter said, well, Grandma, why would you want to pay somebody to do that when you could come live with me? I would do all of those things for you. And so, you know, she was kind of torn but thought, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll move in with them and that's what I'll do. Now, as a result, her granddaughter, Jessica, was financially compensated by the state of New Hampshire for taking care of her grandmother. This is an arrangement that's not unusual. It recognizes that family members that choose to take care of um, folks in, in their home that need taken care of should be compensated if, if a stranger would be compensated. So just to help out with that. So not terribly long after Millie moves in though to convalesce, um, they begin yelling at her and insulting her. Um, she wasn't, you know, she wanted to get out and exercise stretch that hip, you know, do her PT. She was not allowed to go out and walk down the sidewalk to pick up the mail. Um, when she did, she was yelled at as though she were a child that had broken some rule in the house. Um, the, how, the room that she had in the house was actually down about five steps from the main part of the house. And so she couldn't do stairs very well because of her injury. So they would help her down to her room and then walk away. So she was more or less confined to her room during the day. Um, so, she, But when she was in the main parts of the house, she would see huge amounts of mail stacking up in the kitchen. And a couple of times she noticed that they were made out to her, these letters that were coming in the mail. And you know she wouldn't recognize the company name. And it would be very weird that this company would be sending her anything. Um, she saw utility bills, she saw cable bills, phone bills, credit cards, um, and she would ask about it and she would be told to not be nosy. It's really none of your business. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go back to your room? You can stay there if you're going to ask these kinds of questions when we're being so good to you and taking care of you. This is what she was told. So then she began noticing that some of these letters and bills with her name on them were getting chucked in the trash without even being opened, and that really made her worried. At which point her granddaughter would say, you know what, it was junk mail. You don't even know what you're doing. I mean, seriously, do you think I would do this to you? I'm, how ungrateful are you? So then she notices store packages start coming in for things that have been purchased 
presumably online, you know, UPS is coming to deliver just about every day to their house. Um, and she's seeing her name on some of these packages, but she's, again, not allowed to open any of these things. And she would see her daughter and her granddaughter coming back with just shopping bags full of clothes and toys for the kids and just all kinds of junk. And to make matters more interesting, her daughter who lived there did not work at all. And the only income Jessica had was from being paid by the state of New Hampshire to be her grandmother's caregiver. Um, and Millie knew that their finances were such that they they couldn't go on shopping sprees in the past. So it really concerned her how they could possibly be going on these shopping sprees now. So they began to isolate her a little bit more. Um, she was let out of, I hate to say it like that, but she was let out of her room less often. Um, her time going outside was completely cut off. She was not allowed to go out even with them. And she would hear the phone ring and have people tell, you know, hear her granddaughter or her daughter say, no, I'm sorry, she's too sick to come to the phone, or she's not available, or she's taking a nap, and she would never be given any messages that so-and-so had called or anything like that. And when, again, when she, whenever she would ask about these things, she was told that she was incompetent, that she was ungrateful, and how dare you question us. So with the help of a friend, Millie managed to obtain her financial credit report. And this is what really concerned her, and this is when she decided she needed to go to the police. They determined there were over 40 credit cards on her credit report. Two of those were hers, but the total outstanding credit card balances for the other 38 plus was in excess of $46,000. And that did not include the interest payments that were back due. Ultimately, um, the granddaughter was brought in. She was questioned about it. The daughter was brought in and questioned about it. The daughter denied any involvement. The granddaughter confessed to everything. She said, yep, that's what I was doing. She basically said, hey, ends are tight. Grandma's got the credit, why shouldn't we? She's the one that caused the extra burden on the family for extra groceries and extra time. And I couldn't, uh, I I couldn't get another job because I had to take care of her. So I did what I had to for my kids. Now, mind you, um, you know, there were purchases made all over the place. The, this is not like buying little kids' clothing or, or buying groceries. The purchases were made from, you know, high-end realtors and things of that nature. I mean, it was, it was really crazy. Um, in addition, there were multiple utility accounts and cell phone accounts opened in Millie's name as well. When it came time to go to court, um, Jessica really wanted to go to trial, even though she had confessed to her involvement. And so one of the issues, again, kind of as I alluded to earlier, one of the things we have to prove if we go to a criminal case is that we would have to prove that she did all of this without Millie's permission. And that meant Millie was going to have to take the stand. And Millie told our office that basically we could think about Jessica whenever we wanted to. When she thought about Jessica, no matter what had happened, she was still that little 12-year-old with pigtails. It was her granddaughter, and she couldn't possibly take her away from her own kids by having her go to jail. Because I made it pretty clear that that's what I was going to recommend if we got a conviction. Um, and so because Millie ultimately said, please don't make me do this, we agreed to a plea offer that was a fully suspended state prison sentence. Um, she got ten, five to ten years in state prison suspended for a period of ten years. She's been placed on the registry. She'll never be able to work with elderly or um, disadvantaged adults in her life. 
she was on probation for a couple of years in order to pay about $15,000 in restitution. Now, for people that are paying attention, the total amount was $46,000 plus, and then we, she was only ordered to make restitution of $15,000, and I want to explain to you why that is. Of these 40-some credit card accounts, as well as all the utility accounts I mentioned, less than half of the companies cooperated with us as far as getting us a dollar amount for what we could ask for in restitution, and less than half of them cooperated with us for getting us records. And the reason for this is that most of those credit cards were about $1,500 limits, $2,000 limits, and it was easier for the company to write it all off than keep it open on the books and deal with us. So we were only able to recover, we were only able to get documentation um, to be able to pursue about $15,000 worth. So um, ultimately she moved to Pennsylvania with her mother who apparently um, had her own health issues and because there's no state-to-state -state registry, the people in Pennsylvania wouldn't have any idea unless they ran her criminal record that she'd been convicted of identity theft. So I made a phone call down to Adult Protective Services where she had moved just to tell them, hi, I can't file anything official, but you guys should know who's living in your community. Um, so that's about it. Um, I think this goes longer when Ryan and I argue back and forth about things. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions? I think, you know, I, I grew up where you said much of your audience is from North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And people are very hesitant about prying in other people's business. I agree with you 100%. To, because we, my wife and I were uh, aware that the people couple houses down were very, getting very old. He had Alzheimer's. He was blind. And they had a, the daughter, who was an attorney, brought in a housekeeper. And I was worried that they were getting robbed blind. So what do I do? You know, what happens? Uh, because I know that they, the couple would not be you know, too happy with me prying in their business. I'm not sure what the daughter would have thought. You know, so I didn't do anything. For, for the webcast people, um, the gentleman here is explaining he grew up in North Dakota. So Becky, he's from your neck of the woods. Um, and he's saying that there was a couple, a couple doors down from him that were getting older and their daughter was an attorney and she'd hired a housekeeper. And he and his wife had very strong concerns that they were being robbed blind but that um, in particular in the Midwest, and I think this is true in the Midwest, I think it's true in this area as well, people tend to keep to themselves. You don't get involved in other people's business. Um, and so what can you do? Well, to answer that, I don't know what you could have done when you lived back out there. I don't know what services are available. If that happened no, again that today. Happened here in New Hampshire. Oh, here in New Hampshire. Yeah. Call Adult Protective Service. They're, they have a hotline. It's open during, um, Banker's hours, 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. Um, I will find the number. It, actually, it's got to be somewhere here at the Aging Resource Center in a brochure. And if not, um, you can look up Adult Protective Service online. Basically, they have an anonymous hotline, and that's where a lot of our calls are coming in. Um, it's not unlike the hotline for child abuse, except that it's for adults. But they go out, they talk to the person. If there are concerns that they need to follow up on, they do. Um, if there are no concerns that they can do anything about, but they want to provide services just the same, 
they'll talk to the senior and say, maybe this is going on, maybe this is going on. You can also call your local police department just to keep an eye out to see because for all you know, maybe you have those concerns, maybe their pastor has those concerns, maybe the lady down at the post office who's been dealing with them for 20 years has those same concerns too. So you're not alone in all of it and you can be anonymous. And I, I agree with you 100%. There are a ton of people that would say, how dare you get in my business? That's why it's an anonymous hotline. And what I tell people is that, you know, there was a point in time where I had a family member show up once at a family gathering with a black eye. Now, we couldn't really see it under all the makeup she put on, but it was a black eye. And I was a bit younger then, and I, I'm toward the tail end of the grandkids on both sides of the family, but you didn't talk about that. You didn't ask her where it came from. You sure as heck didn't make any suggestions, right? Because domestic violence is a family affair. That's what we used to all think. But that's changed, because we know it's so not. It's about so much more than that. Child abuse. I'm sure each one of you can think of a time that you saw in the grocery store a mother grab her kid by the scruff of the neck and just wail on who's behind. Can you even imagine that happening now? Yeah. No, right? Sure. I mean, my goodness, uh, that lady left the kid in the car down um, by one of, oh, I can't remember which store, which uh, mall it was in, but there must have been 15 people standing there all wanting to hang her for leaving the kid in the car, you know? And, and I think the police officer was there to protect her more than anything else because the, the crowd was going to. That's where we've come though from with child abuse because it used to be, hey, that's, that's family business, domestic violence, hey, that's family business. We've changed, we've agreed this is a community problem and the same is true of elder abuse. And so I, I do share your concerns though because, um, you know, I'm convinced at some point my parents may need a little bit of help and, uh, you know, that's one of those struggles I have to deal with. How, how do we do that when that, come, that time comes around? You know, my husband dealt with it when his, when his uh, stepdad was passing. You know, how, do, how much is too much? And the question is, you gotta rely on yourself, but for you, you're in a particularly serious situation. Um, you know, an anonymous call can make all the difference. And Chief, I think you could probably speak for all the police. Um, when people call in like that, I can't imagine anybody not making you anonymous. I mean, you know, and, and you can't be as anonymous as simply not giving your name to when you call in, you know. Everybody respects that because they know what you're doing is you're reaching out, but maybe you don't have all the information. But at least it's a place to start, you know. Because um, when they died, they died within three months of mm -hmm. each other. The daughter came up from Concord and said, we don't have any of the jewelry left, all of the silverware is gone. And so, I'm saying, well, so the gentleman is saying that they passed away within three months of each other, and when the daughter came up to settle the estate, tons of stuff was missing. Oh, thank you so much. So Adult Protective Services for people that are listening in New Hampshire and that are here, it's 1-800-949-0470. If you are watching this webcast in Vermont and you want the number, it's one 800 564-1612. And those of you in other states, um, I'm sure I'm sure there are Delta Protective Service hotlines in your states as well if you want to look them up. That's the best thing I can say for anybody out there. If you have a concern, don't hesitate. Because we would rather overreact than underreact. Because we've been underreacting for a long time. Anybody have any other questions or comments? 
mean, what you're talking about is so common. You know, I mean, you shouldn't. You, you speak for many people, you know, with your story right now because um, we've all seen it. You know, we've all seen people like that. And so then the question is, at what point do you jump in? And I think that's something you have to rely on your gut instinct alone. But in the meantime, I hope we've given you some information that you can use. And I haven't made anybody paranoid or. Anything like that? Haven't convinced you to shop on the internet, I know. They've <laughs> <laughs> even turned a couple of people off. Unlike her, I right. shop on the web all the time, and uh, it says, you know, secure website. It so says how, secure how website. How am I supposed to know if it's a? I would. So the question is, if you're shopping online and it says secure website, how do you actually know it's a secure website? You can contact individual companies and ask them for their policies. You know, and ask them specifically to give you that information before you ever give them any financial information, because maybe maybe they don't have any they don't take any responsibility for a compromise of their system. That's kind of important to know if they're not going to take responsibility for it. If they are going to take responsibility for it, you can better believe they're putting the money into it to secure it. So you can contact individual companies. I have another question. Certainly, maybe it's not so much. It's just annoying what's happening to me now. I'm getting a lot of junk mail, uh, and I'm, I feel a little paranoid. People are swapping my, you know. So the participant is getting a lot of junk mail lately, and she's worried that um, somehow her address is out there. Remember that a lot of companies do sell your address. I know that. Um, it's a big money maker. There is an opt-out address that you can write to. I know um, I'll have to Google for it right now because I don't have it handy with me, but it's. Um, there, there is a clearinghouse, and there's actually I think there's two or three clearinghouses where um, they can actually put a ban on it and you know stop the junk mail solicitation. Okay. If oh. you look on Google, um, well, you know Google is, is great for everything, but I, I know I've seen it primarily in places where you want to cut down on the amount of junk mail coming in. Period. You know, for environmental reasons, maybe. Sure. You know, um, they do list it from time to time, so you can probably find it somewhere. Mm -hmm. So, are, are the uh, following up on that? Are the are the companies who are getting ready to sell your address? Are they supposed to look at this list, so to speak, and and then not sell your address if you're on the list? The question is: so, if a company is getting ready to sell your address, do they look up on the the list of um, no junk mail solicitations before they sell your information? I don't think so. I think they can still sell it, but the issue is that you're not supposed to be solicited anymore. It's kind of under, it's under federal law, and I wish I could remember it exactly, but I don't think that prohibits them from selling your information so, necessarily. So not, so you, if you're not supposed to be solicited, does that mean that then, like the company that's buying all this list of addresses is not supposed to include you when they mail something? Is that, is that what you mean? Right, right. Basically, it should stop it from coming in, but it doesn't necessarily stop them from having your information for selling. And remember too, anytime you give your address out for something like, um, you know, we we, um, we bought our nephews a subscription to a magazine as a gift. We get every kid's magazine now because in yeah. ordering it, we agreed that they could use our address for marketing purposes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so I've, I've had more highlights solicitations than <laughs> I think I had when I was a kid. <laughs> and the, um, I, this is just one of my pet peeves, I guess you might say. All the various stores that have those rewards cards and stuff. Oh, the I rewards mean, cards in the various they stores. Want, they don't want to reward you. Yeah. They want your information. Sure. That's all they want, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, 
I can't speak for them, but that is what, yeah, the question was, uh, they basically just want your information, right, not to give you rewards. I would say there, there are multiple reasons, but they most assurably want your information to pass along so for those kinds of reasons. So here's a legal question then. If you, what if I just give them a fake name and address no, to get a card? Don't give them a, your name and address. I mean, most, don't I don't have any of those cards. I always tell them I don't want them, but what if you uh, just give them a fake name and address? It's hard to give up that discount, isn't it? Mm. Well, <laughs> well so I, I would say it. under New Hampshire law, because you are giving a false identity, which could in theory belong to someone um, for services that you know you wouldn't otherwise get. <laughs> probably not a good idea. It's now. probably <laughs> not the best idea, right? That was sort of a joke, but anyway. I, I was going to say, there are, there are a couple grocery stores in town now that have stopped the loyalty card thing. They so. have, and I, yes, gave, they have. And, I, and I gave them a, a very, uh, I don't know, I just told them that was a wonderful thing that they were doing with it when they stopped those cards. We, we speak with our wallet for... You know that for that, yeah. That's that's how we. Yeah. But I like my CVS. Cubicle. You like your CVS. <laughs> <laughs> but they just solicited again. I have another. So are there updates? Your question about Florida? Okay. When you go to annualcreditreport.com, do you do? I, I went there a couple of years ago and I can't remember. You do you have to get all three at one time? No. You went you to annualcreditreport.com several years ago, and the question was, do you have to get all three at the same time? And happily, another person in the audience has said no. <laughs> Just, you give you there are three of them, so you can get one every, every few months. Well, that that was months. my intention, and I thought that I was required to get all three at one time. But like I said, it was several years ago. So, yeah. so the suggestion has been made that when you go to annualcreditreport.com, that you only ask for one. One, from one of the credit reporting bureaus, wait a couple of months, go back and request it from a second reporting bureau, and then for the third, and that'll give you something to look at about every three months, then instead of once a year. That's a good suggestion. Anything else? Okay, excellent. Thank you all very much. Thank I'm sorry you. Ryan didn't make it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.